Hello. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I have an amazing guest, Robin Goldberg, who is a registered dietitian here in Los Angeles. She is an author as well. Robin, I don't know if you want to give a little background real quick and give a little plug into the book. But for anyone who hasn't read it, I think it's, you know, I'll let you I'll let you do a little advertising. <laughs> Thank you so much, Shelby. It's it's great to be here and have a, a convo with you. Uh, um, I'm the author of The Eating Disorder Trap, a guide for clinicians and loved ones. And it was written in the layman, most basic manner. So anyone could understand what was written. It was written for clinicians, non-clinicians, family members, clients, and basically helps the reader understand what's going through the mind of someone that struggles with an eating disorder, as well as medically, what could happen, and also screening questions I like to use when I'm meeting people and working with them that I know many other providers and even family members will try to adopt into their conversations. And how to be able to work on getting to a place where, you know, food is not seen as the enemy or there's not this negativity centered around it. And yeah, so that's, that is my book. I also have a podcast that Shelby was recently on the Eden Sort of Trap podcast, where I have providers, non-providers sharing their pieces of wisdom that my listeners I know can benefit from. And you and I have a similar audience and then yeah. lastly, I have an online course called Your Recovery Resource, and it's developed for what parents, partners, and caregivers lack in how to support the loved one who's struggling. So oh, awesome. I think it's really great because oftentimes our parents will say like, oh yeah, therapy is great for my loved one who's struggling, but not for me. And I think whoever you are living with, it's important that your partner or your parent is doing the work as well. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I've I've thought about that too because I feel like so many parents and family members they just don't know what to do or say. Sure. And I will just say it's free. So if you were to go onto yeah. my site, askaboutfood.com and you click under courses, just type in your email and it's 35 modules that I developed with my colleague Becca Clegg, who's an eating disorder therapist in Atlanta, and it has videos, worksheets, and it's great because it's free. And hopefully, you know, whoever you're giving it to will be on board to do it to help better serve you. Yeah, awesome. What's up, guys? This is Shelby and welcome to Not Your Regular Coach Podcast. (laughs) How long have you been in this field and how did you get into it? Coming on 27 years, I've been in practice. I got into my profession based on my family history of heart disease. My dad was alive at the time and growing up, always hearing about heart disease and high cholesterol. Everyone in my family hereditarily has high cholesterol and or heart disease. I've had high cholesterol since I was 13. So that was how I became interested in being a registered dietitian nutritionist. And then the other two ways I became interested was I played college tennis and I thought like, hmm, if I actually pay attention to my nutrition for my performance, like I might actually have more stamina and just, Mm -hmm. you know, have better energy out there. And then I had two roommates in college with eating disorders 
which was my first exposure to it. And I became interested in learning about their eating disorders. So those were the three reasons and how I chose my field. When you were in college, do you think that your roommates, did they know they had an eating disorder? Was it something that was like talked about or not really? Well, all three of them actually struggled with bulimia nervosa. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, since I was a college tennis player, I had a different class schedule than them. So I would go to sleep at night uh, with listening to them purge, basically. And one of them would always come talk to me at breakfast in the dining hall And one day just said, like, basically knew I was hearing her in the bathroom. And I don't know if it was like, okay, I want to share this with someone. Or, you know, typically I was on my own in the morning because I had a different schedule from everyone. And I remember, you know, she had said to me, do you want me to share my secret with you? And I was like oblivious of, well, what secret? And then basically started sharing with me, you know, all about her eating disorder. You had never struggled with an eating disorder, right? No, you know, what what I struggled with was not listening to my body, being an athlete and quote unquote, working through the pain. And I've paid the price for years, having four foot surgeries. I've had chronic feet problems and my first foot surgery was at 13. So I never knew about like, okay, there's a reason you're having these feet issues. Part of my situation was genetic, but versus recognizing like, okay, maybe I shouldn't, you know, do these line drills or runs that the tennis coaches would have me do because of what I was predisposed to. So, yes, it was more not listening to my body and ignoring it, which, you know, catches up with you sooner or later. Yeah, with it catches up with an eating disorder, too, which I I know is in your book. (laughs) Yes, yes. Okay, so on that note, I obviously work with eating disorder clients as well as a coach. And sometimes a lot of times I will hear clients say, because usually I say you have to have a dietitian and a therapist, right, to work to work with me. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they're like, I don't have a therapist. But more than not, I would say people are like, I don't need a dietitian because I know how to eat. So why do I need a dietitian? But like, personally, I know when I was sick, I actually didn't really know how to eat anymore in a sense of like, I, because it had gotten so off track, because I also struggled with, I kind of went all over the map from like anorexia to bulimia. So I actually like didn't really know what a normal amount of food was anymore. But I always tell them, you know, a dietitian does so much more than that. They're not teaching you how to eat. So how how do you respond or what do you have to say to people that are kind of in that mindset? I always like to explain that the, the where many people obtain their information from is not accurate. I'm learn I'm learning, you know, these ideas from my parents, from social media, from teachers, from peers. So there's the part of me debunking myths they have centered around various types of carbohydrates, various types of protein sources, various types of fats. Also, the point you mentioned with like, sometimes we have this distortion with understanding the amounts of food that our body needs is my goal with anyone I see is really to have them become the expert of their bodies, as opposed to someone telling them, quote unquote, how much or how little they need when they're able to progress to being an intuitive eater versus starting more mechanically, like the the clients I know you see, Shelby, it's, I would imagine it's more mechanical, like they're aware that, okay, it's required for me to consume X amount of this meal versus it being free flowing and determining based on 
how something physically feels in one's body, how it's tasting, what the social situation is. So I find, you know, part of my role is really helping clients not be fearful of any foods or food groups, being able to find pleasure in food, not having biases towards various foods and food groups, and really being able to view it as like, yeah, food can and should be a pleasurable experience. My role is not to police them and tell them it's different. Like if you're in residential or PHP, Mm -hmm. there's this like, hmm, you have to have X amount. I think you know a lot of the clients I see are either coming out of treatment or they're trying to avoid going into treatment or a higher level of care. So there is that mechanical component for folks like that that I see. But I I think it really takes a team. It takes a village to get to a place where food is not what a person is thinking about or dreading about. Where you know you're not sleeping. I always like to say out of a twenty four hour period, how many waking hours are you thinking about what you're going to eat, what you're not eating, how much you're exercising, all of that. It's like for many people I see, it's the majority of those waking hours. And I really Mm -hmm. like to help them develop, like as you've done, Shelby, find a fulfilling life that's not this narrow bubble that they're living in. How do you feel about meal plans like in an outpatient setting? Do you have a kind of like meal plan that you give people? Do you does it depend on the person? Because I know there's a whole thing about that, too. Like how to do a meal plan, how to not do a meal plan. And every dietitian is different. So I don't have what I would call generic meal plans. The the goals that I create with clients are individualized based on them, because I always like to say it's going to be a lot more flexible seeing someone like me versus if you're at a higher level of care, the dietitian's not going to work with where you're at. So I feel like a meal plan is often what people associate seeing registered dietitians. Oh, okay, I'm going to have to eat X amount of protein, carb, milk, fat, etc. I think that can be necessary when you're in a higher level of care but also where it's not something you're dependent on. It's sort of like, you know, by the time your fractured ankle has healed, your doctor saying, yeah, let's start to put some weight on that foot. We don't, we don't need to use the crutches. So I'm at the point with many people that I like to be able to say, you know what, what do you like to eat? What sounds appealing to you? What were foods you enjoyed before you had your eating disorder? If you even remember what, what is, scary to you about eating that food and really diving in to understand how choices are made and if those are the choices one really wants to be making. Yeah. And I really like that. And, you know, I understand when you're not in an outpatient setting, it's, you know, if you're in residential or they kind of have to, there are guidelines that you have to follow in order to be healed enough to, to be able to like explore intuitive eating. But I like that because I was actually just talking to somebody earlier and you know there's like the exchange meal plans there's just meal plans by calories sometimes I see people that really need that but then also sometimes I see people that might have really bad OCD or perfectionism and then it kind of just becomes another like obsession yes um, I think it creates another set of problems yeah which I think is really interesting and I think that's what makes you different and why I am like really drawn to you because you really do individualize it. It's not like you have a 
lists of exchanges and you just hand them off to people and say here, <laughs> um, which I think is amazing because then I think people also can kind of not just look at the person as like, oh, this is my doctor prescribing food, but more as like this person actually wants to help me and help my body recover and feel and figure out what feels good. 100%. I mean, as, as I was going to say, I'm like the counterpart of you, Shelby, where you're being able to take clients back into real life situations. And that's what my objective is to versus it being scripted. I feel like when it's scripted, it doesn't allow you to roll with the punches and adapt flexibility in one's life. Yeah, because then it's just a new set of rules. Again, exactly. It's getting back into the rules of I should do this, I should do that, trying to work on removing the shoulds. Yeah. So another thing too that came up when you were talking that I wanted to talk about is you're really big on each person finding what works for them and what how much is enough for them and what feels good for them. How do you deal with the comparisons? Because I know, I'm sure you hear it all the time, but like I know almost every day somebody says something like, well, my sister didn't eat breakfast or like my roommate ate a salad and I couldn't or like anything. My parents, my parents don't eat as much as I do. And I'm always like, okay, well, your parents don't have an eating disorder. Like your parents are 60 and you're not. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure you hear that all the time. All day long. Yeah. So what do you, what do you say? (laughs) Well, responding to all the different examples you gave, I first like to say, your mother is not my client. Your roommate is not my client. Your sibling is not my client. However, as a teenager or a millennial, your needs are different from an adult's. And I'll say, looking back as we've been working together, do you think it's normal the way this person eats or that person eats? Because I think the longer you're in it with your eating disorder, the more you can look through a different lens and say like, hmm, I think my roommate has disordered eating. I think my roommate has some issues. You know, our clients, Shelby, are pretty savvy and sophisticated and they're able to recognize more, especially when they're working towards their path of being on, you know, recovered. So when I'm hearing, and actually I was having this conversation with a client last night, exactly what you said. And so two sessions ago, my client was speaking about how she thinks her mother has an eating disorder and never sits down to have a meal with mm-hmm. she and her siblings. And so she was my last client last night and said like, oh, what are restaurants near you to be able to eat at? She says, yeah, I'd like to you know, be able to have dinner. And, and the mother was sitting in the car in the driveway. And so I gave a recommendation and I was looking on recovery record and I see, you know, I threw out some like different things I thought my client would like. And she wrote and she was like, oh, this was great. I really liked it. And she says, I wish my mother would quote unquote be normal and sit and eat with me. She decided to just sit in the car and I sat in the restaurant by myself, she said that, which was huge for me and ordered what I wanted. Wow. And I had asked her like, did you find that you were rushing because someone was there? So no, I took my time and, and said, you know what? I'm used to eating alone because it's been years since she has sat and eaten with me and my siblings. So it goes to show you 
Two, when you realize like, okay, this person has a problem, like they don't eat meals, like they're having a snack, like many people and clients will say this to me, like all the different people you gave as example, Shelby, like Mm -hmm. we'll say, gosh, I'm the only one eating a meal. My roommate, my sibling, my parents, they don't have meals. Well, does that sound normal to you? Does that sound like that's sufficient to support your mind, Mm -hmm. your sleep, your hormones, your energy? Probably not would be the answer. Right. And I have a lot of girls in college too. And that's a big thing that comes up is like my roommate sleeps in late. She doesn't eat breakfast and, you know, and, and it could be like, okay, well that could be disordered eating. Um, or I know when I was in college, well, when I was in college, I was pretty much still struggling with my eating disorder, but I had friends that weren't, but like they would eat the majority of their food late, not even like waiting to have it later, but just have more caloric lunch, have a more caloric dinner, have more snacks. And so I I always say like, it's not one specific thing that you can compare to. You can't say like, she didn't have breakfast, but I did because you don't know what their whole day looks like. But yeah. And then there are the times where I think some roommates or parents, anything like might actually have disordered eating or possibly even an eating disorder. Yeah. And then I think that sometimes I know with my clients like that drives them crazy because they're like i'm trying to get better and this constantly activated is doing yeah yeah so then that makes it like a million times harder and i like i'm the only person that i know of besides my grandmother that had an eating disorder um so i didn't have to really like deal with that but yeah i mean i can't imagine if i was recovering and i saw my mom doing all the things that i was trying not to do that would be really hard Well, especially when like you're living at home and maybe your mom will make your meals, but doesn't experience them with you. Or when you're speaking about the roommates too, if one sleeps in, sometimes the snacking at night turns into a meal because they're hungry due to not nourishing themselves sufficiently throughout the day. So like when someone's getting mad themselves, like, oh my gosh, I had so many Kit Kats and cookies. And then I had the grapes. It's like, you're probably hungry. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of this, that's what I say too about, you know, especially in college, if someone sleeps in late, I'm like, yeah, but are they going out later and drinking and eating pizza that you're not like, you can't really compare the two. Yeah. Would you say that most of your clients, well, I'm sure it's a mix, but come out of like a residential treatment or would you say most or half or some of them have never been in a place like that and they're just trying to figure out what's going on with with their eating? I would say it's a mix, but currently my caseload is many trying to avoid treatment. They know there's a problem and there's something going on, but they'll say, you've probably heard this many times, like, I don't think I'm sick enough. It's like, no, you're, you're like, the people that are in treatment. It's like they have a idea, a vision of how they quote unquote should be looking. I have the biggest referral source for me over these last few years with the pandemic has been medical stabilization, occasionally residential, but it's it's a mixed bag. And also I feel like Shelby, I'm always suggesting like, oh, you know, I have a colleague who you would really benefit from because you're struggling being able to branch out 
with these different breakfasts I'm suggesting. Like, what about a meal companion coach? Oh, no, I would never eat with someone I don't know. <laughs> That's I know. weird, Robin. Yeah, I know. I know. We was just I was just talking about this, too, especially with the um, I was just I, literally right before this. I had a client. We were eating a snack and she was like, yeah, when my mom told me that I had to eat with some weird girl, I thought she was just going to sit there and stare at me eating. And so I didn't want to. And I was like, yeah, I know that's what everyone thinks, but that's not what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of I mean, but I get it. When I was 16, if my mom was like, hey, this girl's coming over to eat with you, I would have probably had a pain. Like I would have said, no, that's not happening. So I get it. It's kind of hard to explain. What are your thoughts right now about higher level of care, like residential treatments and the way that they're taught or not taught how to eat when they leave? I think it's very controversial. You know, the the truth of the matter is one of the pluses about residential is that you're being medically evaluated every day your blood mm-hmm. pressure, your pulse. I think there's you know a lot of pluses and, and some negatives. Part of it is oftentimes they're discharged before they're appropriately needing to be discharged. It's not taking into consideration real life situations of activities of what one was doing or yeah, I don't have a chef preparing meals. We're ordering takeout and also their blood work. Like if it's a female, are they menstruating? Mm-hmm. Do they? I mean, there's there's so many elements of it. So I think it's really having a strong outpatient team, because in many cases, having a strong outpatient team and and let's face it, treatment's expensive. Not everyone can afford it. Insurance typically terminates sooner than would be recommended. So to be able to see the doctor each week to be able to see your dietitian once a week, maybe twice a week, to be able to have a meal companion coach, to be able to have your therapist multiple days a week. I mean, I think it's great having all those appointments when you're in treatment, but it's not really taking you back into real life recovery. Right. So I think that's where where you and I come in because we're like, okay, so now we know all these things. Our body is in a better place. Now, how do we live real life and eat food? Correct. And so I think that's, I mean, to me, I think that's like so powerful. And I'm sure for you too, that's, it's great to just see people not give them instructions and say, this is exactly what you have to do, but guide them and then see them doing it in a way that works for them. I don't know. It just feels more empowering. For sure. Well, it's different when you're having to do the work versus someone's bringing you your tray of food. And I don't say they're doing the work for you, but where you have to think about, I want to make a shopping list, help me make a shopping list. And then Shelby can go to the store with me or how will I food prep this? And what if I want to have more than what I've prepared for myself? Like being able to deal with these real life thoughts and mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. I know you work with all ages, right? Yes. What is your opinion on FBT for kids that are, I mean, and not it's, it's not even always kids. Sometimes it's people in their early 20s. Well, for adolescents, it's the choice of recommended mm-hmm. nutritional guidelines. I mean, FBT is definitely what all the research shows. And I think it's yeah. wonderful. And there could be you know, teams that are created that are not 
trained FBT clinicians that are creating their own IOP for mm-hmm. a client to be able to go the FBT route. And for our listeners that don't know what that is, that's family-based therapy that Shelby was referring to. Right. So it's mainly for adolescents, like when the I've heard people describe it as like residential at home because the parents are kind of like doing everything for yes, them. Yes, your parents and it are nutritionally them. rehabilitating you. Which I think when you're 13, 14, 15, like that makes total sense because if someone just says go into the kitchen and make dinner, like that's they that's hard. Um, I think it gets a little more tricky when it's like 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds and then that kind yeah. of... When they're not a minor anymore, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then that's where it's like they need somebody to help them be able to feel empowered and feel like an adult, but also be able to get what they need and understand what they need. Yeah, I think really individualizing what their life is like as a young adult and how to be able to have the support with also working on living your life. Because for many of these folks, they're not living their life. Their job is being a professional patient. Yeah. And you don't, and if you don't see a reason or some glimmer of hope to kind of shift that mindset, then it's really hard to shift your mindset because it's hard to see out of it sometimes when you're really deep in it and you're just like, I don't have anything else going for me in my life. But that's not necessarily true. It's just, it feels that way because, like you said, this is their full time job. Correct. They don't know anything else. They don't know what hobbies they have or would potentially have because maybe they never had hobbies in their life. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I mean, that's a whole nother thing too, is establishing relationships outside of eating disorder. Yeah. But a lot of relationships are around food and, and you know, and as you get older, like going for drinks, going to get food. So food many social- It doesn't even have to be alcohol. It could be yeah. coffee, tea. So I many splendid. social situations are based yes. around that. Yes. That's also hard when you feel like you have these specific guidelines you have to follow. And I mean, eating disorders are so much about structure and control. So letting go of that a little bit is just so important because you can't structure and control your life. Like you can't control where your friend is going to ask you to go out to dinner tomorrow, you know? Well, the pandemic, I always like to say, is a great example of how structure and control we were all robbed from. Mm -hmm. Teaches you to find new food choices in the grocery store, different brands, different flavors, different grains, different everything, eating at different times. Go, I mean, being able to really, I believe the pandemic was great to help a person become more flexible if that's even possible, to develop new hobbies and interests, how to entertain oneself when it's not centered around movement. There definitely was a spike, I think, when I've seen with eating disorders and disordered eating after the pandemic. It wasn't just that. It was also like just mental health in general, I think, because, you know, we were kind of all like. Sure. Anxious, depressed, overwhelmed. So I think mental health and disorders for sure skyrocketed. Yeah. And so now it is interesting because I was older. I mean, I wasn't in school, obviously, when the pandemic happened, but. I do. I mean, for better or for worse, I think there's pros and cons, like you said, to to both. It kind of had it kind of made people not be able to control everything. Um, So then therefore learning how to be flexible. And it was a pandemic. So obviously mental health wasn't thriving, but it's been what, three years, almost 
like three and a half years since, yeah. since that all started. Three and a half. So I do think things are starting to get like definitely more back to normal and therefore more normal around food, like people letting other people cook for them, people having dinner parties at their house. And so it's really becoming like food and beverages, like you said, are, are really becoming the main social like outlet for social activities. If a person allows himself to be social, because when you have an eating disorder, it's very difficult, if not unlikely, to have a relationship outside of your eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And if you do have a relationship outside of your eating disorder, it's probably very superficial. It's very guarded what is disclosed and how much you let that person in to know the true authentic self. Right. And so I guess one of my last questions for you would be, I know when somebody's really sick and when somebody's having, you know, trouble finding a healthy relationship with food. And if I try to say, oh, well, you know, this, uh, you want to have your life back. You want to be able to hang out with people. You want to be able to see friends. You want to be able to. And a lot of times they're so in it that it just doesn't seem worth it. Like, it's like, no, I I don't care. I just have to have the control over this. And I, you know, that's the most important thing to me. But then at the same time, they'll be like, I'm miserable and I don't feel like I have anything in my life. And so it's, it's hard because it's like a catch 22 between both. And how do you, if somebody were to say, you know, I don't care if I can ever go out to dinner with anyone else ever again, because that isn't worth it to me. But but then also is, you know, obviously seeing you for a reason and is not feeling great about their lives. It's like hard to reason with people sometimes to say, well, maybe if you like were working on your eating disorder, or maybe if you were in recovery, these things would be worth it to you. Or the other route I like to to go, Shelby, is talking about travel. Yeah. Places you'd like to visit you've never been to before. And it's like, well, I'll go to Santa Barbara, which is local. And it's easy for me to eat my food. Well, what about going to China, to India, to Australia? How, how would you approach it? And so I, I really like to pose, well, we never travel. Well, does it interest you? Does it interest you to see what other parts of the world are like or how people live or everything? I mean, so I, I think that, but also when you're in it, it's so hard to see outside of of the bubble that you're in yeah it just takes like a little tiny bit of curiosity and then we can kind of work with that (laughs) well and once you have that experience of going somewhere then the curiosity may start to open but also when you're going to one of these places and you're so deep in the eating disorder chances are you may not enjoy it or it's limited how much you'll enjoy it Mm -hmm. and you it'll be very stressful to be able to go to Paris. Although you're like, yeah, I want to go to Paris. I want to go to the Eiffel Tower. It's like, okay, I'm having every meal out. My family yeah. has to stop at this bakery in the morning and, and grab a croissant. And it's stressful. And yeah. So everything about it is stressful. So therefore going anywhere isn't appealing. Right. That's funny that you say that because when I was in my eating disorder, I went to Paris and the only thing that I can really remember was I used to make us walk everywhere, which was miserable. And it was cold because it was the winter. 
And then, you know, everyone always talks about French food and how amazing it is and how great the bread is. And I don't even remember that because I think yeah. I was just so stressed about, okay, well, if they're going to have a croissant, then like, what am I going to do? I have to go find this. I have to go find that. And yeah, then you're not even present for something that you want to be present for, but you're not aware. It just, it just gets like so convoluted in your mind um, yeah, that it's hard sure. to, to be able to enjoy things. I always like to say, and I've been to a lot of countries, the breads and bakeries in Paris to me are the best. I know I got to go back. <laughs> yes. Also in, in Austria, they're pretty good in Germany, but Paris, I, I can still think about it and salivate thinking about it. Yeah. I got to go back and have a redo of Paris because that I was, agree. it wasn't great when I went, but yeah, now I look back on that and I'm like, wow, I went to Paris. Like I, you know, I wish that I had been in a different place, but I am in a different place. So We'll, yeah. we'll have a redo. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So my last question is, what would you say for somebody who is really hesitant to find a dietitian who maybe has had a bunch before, but you know, who really, really could benefit from talking to somebody and like you who isn't trying to just tell them exactly what to do, but is trying to just really help them with re with like learning about their body and learning about what they need, what they feel good, how it's different. What would you say for someone who's hesitant about finding a dietitian, you know, that they might have some reserves about it from past experiences or or whatever it might be, but yeah, what would you say to someone who is who is hesitant and why it is so important? So, if you're hesitant, my guess is you probably have not worked with a non-diet weight-inclusive mm -hmm. nutrition therapist, also known as a registered dietitian nutritionist. People oftentimes associate seeing someone like me as someone who's going to be the food police, tell them what to eat, what not to eat. So I don't blame you. I would have the negative association too. Yeah. Or so to be, be obsessed to with weight, be obsessed with a number. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's an education day in and day out, every person that is an inquiry that speaks with me to other providers with teaching them how I work, because there's not a day that goes by that I will not have a provider saying like, oh, so you'll give a diet or a meal plan. Like, no, I won't. So I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And also to say, you know what? It takes, and, and it says this in the research, seven to 10 years to be fully recovered by having a comprehensive team that is trained in eating disorders. And that team includes your registered dietitian, nutritionist, your therapist who's eating disorder trained, your physician or your pediatrician, potentially a psychiatrist, your meal companion recovery coach like Shelby, like that is your team. Mm -hmm. So if you're approaching it in a mediocre manner and not having all these different components, chances are that you'll still continue to struggle. Now, it doesn't mean having all these folks like, oh, wow, I'm going to be recovered. Yeah. But it's a lot of hard work and time investing in this. I always like to say blood, sweat, and tears with having these appointments, being able to work on what your team is asking you to work on. And then it just becomes more natural because I can I can relate to that and I can agree to that as far as, you know, I think a lot of times there's like this perfectionism in recovery of, 
okay, well, I've been doing this for a year, so now I'm 100% fine. And and then maybe one time having like get really anxious when somebody wants to go to pizza or something. And then it's like, well, I thought I was recovered. Am I not? And it it takes a really long time. It takes practice. It takes a lot yeah. of practice to be able to- A lot of practice. Definitely. You know, to be able to not have to think about it anymore. And I can definitely say that for myself too. It was, it's years. Like you can get better, you can get physically better, but the mental part of it, it takes a long time. And so that's, you know, that's why it's important to have people that are helping you adjust to your lifestyle. For sure. You're preaching to the choir, Shelby. I know. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. I think this was great because like I said, I know I hear it all the time of, like the evil dietitian is like gonna come and make me do this and make me do that and it, and it's just not you know that's just not true and I know for you and for other clinicians like you that is that's not the goal the goal is to be able to live a happy life including food definitely I think there's so many great parts of life and living and when you stay with your rigidity you're probably not living your best life like we're just trying to let go of the rigidity in general in any direction. It's just yeah. trying to like, you know, be a little bit more happy, <laughs> flexible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I Thank I really, you. I always enjoy our conversations. Yes. You're the first dietitian I've ever had on the podcast. So this I is good. Thank we're, you. We're, you're putting out a good word for dietitians. <laughs> Not your regular coach podcast.